This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Bob Archer sitting in today for Charles Feldman. It's becoming a familiar uh, thing to happen. Another miserable weekend for the airlines and the thousands of passengers left stranded by flight cancellations. American Airlines, the main culprit this time, blaming again staffing and weather issues. Will things get better in time for the holidays? We'll go in-depth. World leaders gathering in Glasgow for a climate summit trying to figure out how to overcome the resistance to taking action action on climate change. And in Philadelphia, police officers will no longer be stopping cars for minor traffic violations. We will get more details on this uh, major piece of police reform. Five million people have died across the world from COVID-19. We'll mark a grim milestone. Ask whether there's an end in sight to the pandemic. We'll preview tomorrow's election for governor in Virginia. Could give us signals for the 2022 midterms. And whatever happened to good sportsmanship, that's being asked after Inglewood's highs football team ran up the score to 106 to nothing wow. against Inglewood Morningside on Friday night. Going to start with another awful weekend for airlines. Helene Becker uh, is uh, managing director and senior research analyst covering the airline industry at financial services firm Cohen. Uh, thank you for joining us. So what is going on? It feels like there's a bigger picture here that it would explain all of this. Uh, is there a secret to what's really happening? Um, thanks for having me. I don't know if it's a secret, but I think it's a combination of events. I think it's it's always more than one event. I think it's um, weather that conspires to sort of set things off. And then you get aircraft and crews at a place, and then you have reserve crews that either don't want to pick up extra trips or are themselves not feeling well, or um, depending on the labor group, whether it's TS, I'm not sure actually about TSA agents, but I know for air traffic controllers and pilots, after they receive a vaccine, they can't fly or work for 48 hours. So you get all these things happening at the same time. Um, and with the December 8th deadline looming, it kind of, if you've saved it to the end here, it has to be done. So I think it's going to cause problems. As much as I hate to say it, I think it's going to cause problems at the holidays. Yeah. What do you expect those to look like? Because if it's happening now, you know, random mm -hmm. weekends in October or November, <laughs> it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence going forward when we're all trying to hit the airports unless they can staff up a lot in the next, I don't know, month or two. Yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, I mean, the problem is everybody's hiring at the same time, right? You Not only do you have the airlines hiring, um, and, and there are a lot of people applying, right? I mean, Delta said that they had um, 35,000 applicants for 1,500 flight attendant jobs, and United said they had 20,000 for 2,000. So, so even with unruly passengers, people still want to be flight attendants. It's not... It's not that that's the issue as much as it's that experience people took early retirement or voluntary leaves last year, and they either don't want to come back now, or um, if they've retired, they've retired, they can't come back. So you can't backfill those jobs that quickly. And then at the same time that you're looking for customer service agents and airport agents, gate agents, um, your cater, your contractors are looking for catering staff and you're looking for wheelchair runners and, and so on. You've also got Amazon looking for 150,000 people, FedEx looking for 90,000, UPS looking for 100,000, Target looking for 100,000. And I think Walmart said they were looking for 20,000. So you have this huge number of people looking to hire like this week. <laughs> and, and, um, 
to get through the peak and and you can't train you know them fast enough to get them on board i mean maybe for some of the the lower entry level jobs you can but for some of the more skilled you know to be a flight attendant takes i think two to four weeks of training you have to get them in the academies it's not that easy to just snap your fingers and say, I want to hire 10,000 people and be able to do it. So I, I personally think we're going to be faced with the staffing shortage for more than just a month or two. I think it's going to last well into 2022. Okay, very quickly, is there going to be some long-term uh, bad news for the airline industry? You know, if, if people learn, uh, you know what, I don't need to fly so much. Let's uh, lead to... Leads to less people flying, and uh, then the airline industry losing money. It's, it's got some money problems here and there, and then they've got to train all these new pilots and invest money in that. Are we going to see uh, some more shakeout, maybe some more airlines uh, going under? Um, we may. I mean, I never say never. Of course, that's a big issue because, to your point, labor costs are going up. Um but people want to travel. People are tired of being home. That's the problem. Right? The problem is that we've all been, we all haven't been able to go anywhere. And now that things are open, um, I think people are just tired of hearing about COVID. They want to get back to life, whether it's life as they knew it before, or whatever our new normal is, they want to go places. And, and they're not willing to give up two Christmases with family and friends. They're done. They, they gave up holidays. Now it's time to get back together. And if people are vaccinated, weren't we told if we got vaccinated, we could do this? So I, I think people are going to want to travel. I think it's business travel may not come back 100% of the way. But I think international and domestic leisure, that is for sure coming back. Helene Becker, Managing Director, Senior Research Analyst covering the airline industry at financial services firm Cowan. You can find the KNX In-Depth podcast on the Odyssey app, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And coming up, global leaders are gathering to tackle climate change, but at this point, is it too little, too late? You're listening to KNX In-Depth with the Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer. Still to come, preview of tomorrow's election for governor in Virginia. Could be a political canary in the coal mine. And before that, we've hit another grim milestone in our fights against COVID. And right now, though, global leaders are gathering in Glasgow, Scotland, for the United Nations Climate Summit. And they're facing a lot of challenges. They have to act uh, very quickly and more decisively than ever before. But at the same time, uh, there's a lot more resistance to doing anything. Gavin Schmidt is senior advisor on the climate and director of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies. Thank you uh, so much for joining us today. Uh, so, the you know, the top question whenever we start talking about climate change is, you know, we've, we've uh, heard the warnings from some climate scientists who say, you know what, it's already too late. We've passed the tipping point. Right now it's all about trying to minimize the damage. Uh, where do you come down on that? So uh, we have a lot of stuff to do here. I mean, we do have uh, ongoing climate change. We know that we're seeing the impacts of the climate change uh, that we've caused already, uh, but, but there's no big tipping point. Every little bit that we do now makes things better into the future. One of the important conclusions from the uh, big UN report that was just released in August is that all of the future warming that we can expect is due to our future activities. And so nothing is really locked in other than what's happened already. Uh, and so we can affect this. And, and this big meeting in Glasgow is really to just get everybody to, to be more ambitious uh, and braver 
uh, and uh, you know more complete about how they're going about uh, reducing their emissions. Yeah, I think when most people hear about this, they think back to, okay, what's the other one I recognize? Well, that was the Paris conference and the Paris deal. So how does this compare to that? Was Paris like, oh yeah, we should be doing these things and now it's actually, we need to find the ways to do them? <laughs> oh, right. So Paris was, uh, everybody came to the table and said, yes, this is how we're going to do it. We all signed on the dotted line. All the countries in the world have, uh, have ratified that, uh, possibly with the exception of Eritrea. Um, and uh, this is the five-year mark at which uh, all the countries were supposed to uh, and are doing, uh, being more ambitious, like saying, okay, well, this is what you promised to do uh, at the beginning can you can you do a little bit more? Can you can you push a little bit further with the experience that you've gained? Uh, can you do it cheaper? Can you do it more efficiently? Can you help other people make stronger uh, promises? And uh, the US and Europe and Japan and many many other countries uh, have indeed increased the ambition of uh, what they're promising to do under the Paris Agreement. Uh, you know, one of the arguments made against uh, the U.S. doing anything about climate change is that, uh, you know, Russia and China are not going to do enough about it. So why should we? Which always struck me. It's kind of a crazy argument, because if you've got a neighbor that's uh, burning down his house and adding a lot of smoke to the air, uh, do you turn around and go, well, I guess I'll burn down my house, too. Uh, so that doesn't make a lot of sense. But the question is, this: right. are, are China and, and Russia and other nations uh, doing enough? And if they don't do enough, can we do enough to maybe mitigate that? So nobody's really doing enough, uh, but people's, people are increasing their emission. And, and that even goes for, for China and Russia and Saudi Arabia. Uh, they are, in fact, being shamed by the international community to promise to do more. And for a lot of their own reasons, they have to do more. I mean, like uh, part of uh, the air pollution issues that, that you have in Asia, uh, in India, and in China, uh, these are because they're burning dirty coal. And as they move away from that, they are benefiting directly from the cleaner air as well as the slower change in climate. So there is uh, self-interest um, and there's world pressure. And, and all of these things are pushing in the same direction. Gavin Schmidt, Senior Advisor on the Climate, Director of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies. Coming up on KDX In-Depth, committing a minor traffic violation in Philadelphia will no longer get you pulled over by a police officer. We will explain. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer, in for Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. At the end of uh, today's In-Depth, high school sports is not uh, just supposed to be about winning or losing. Uh, good sportsmanship is an important part of amateur athletics. So keep that in mind when we tell you about Inglewood High's football team demolishing uh, Morningside on Friday night. And by demolishing, I mean 106-0. to zero. Talk about that later on. Right now, Philadelphia is set to become the first major U.S. city to ban police from making traffic stops for minor violations. The driving equality bill has already been approved by the city council. The mayor will be able to sign it as soon as this week. Joining us now, Isaiah Thomas, member of the Philadelphia City Council at large, author of the bill. Uh, Councilman, thanks for being with us. So what prompted you to put this in writing and try and get it passed? Uh, some of it is in that name, right? Because these stops are not happening on an equitable basis. Thank you for having me and thank you to your listener audience. And I think you are absolutely right. It starts with uh, the idea that we know a certain group of people are disproportionately pulled over 
compared to others. And we know that these stops do not lead to any contraband and or weapons. So what can we do to reimagine how we govern, how we interact with neighborhoods and what we do to earn the public trust? And I'm sure that uh, you want to clarify when you say minor traffic uh, violations, uh, you're talking about certain things, but you're not talking about, hey, if, if uh, the police see you speeding dangerously down the road, they are going to uh, stop you and pull you over. Right. So what what uh, quantifies as a minor traffic violation in this uh, bill? So in the city of Philadelphia, currently, if you're pulled over for not having your seatbelt on, I mean, you, you would not get pulled over for not having your seatbelt on. That's considered a secondary violation. So like you said, if you're speeding, if you run a stop sign or if you are driving hazardously, you can still be pulled over. And then we have what we call secondary enforcements, which a seatbelt is in that category. And this bill would add seven things to that same category that the seatbelt is in. Um, admission and uh, inspection stickers. And when you think about where they are, um, they kind of were uh, unofficially in that category before. This just makes it official. Uh, something hanging from uh, dangling from your mirror. So often it's car fresheners. If you're a coach like me, that might be a whistle. Um, so those are, that's three right there. A 60 day grace period on registration, uh, one tail light out, um, minor damage to the bumper, and then the relocation of the driver's license plate, but it must still be visible. So those seven things will now be placed into the secondary level of enforcement, which means if you get pulled over for speeding or some type of other uh, motor vehicle code violation that's a public safety hazard, these violations can be enforced. They can be enforced by B patrol officers as well as uh, Philadelphia Parking Authority officers. You mentioned earlier that part of this is about you know trust between people and the departments. How big a part of that do you think this is, and, and do you think it'll help? Because you know people get pulled over; it's not fun, and if it's something minor, uh, you're probably angry about it. And then number two, it's not fun for the officers because it's a tense situation whenever you pull somebody over. So we know how things escalate. Well, we think that this is a situation that's beneficial for all parties, and we're proud of the fact that this was a working coalition. I didn't just craft this uh, by myself as a legislator. We work in collaboration with other members of council. We work with Philadelphia Police Department, the mayor's office, as well as the public defender's office and, uh, and other stakeholders who really care about this issue. Uh, so we're proud of the fact that we were able to uh, lead a coalition uh, and we were able to put together what we feel like is legislation that's reflective of all parties, uh, not just the legislative branch of government. Yeah, it sounds like you got a, a lot of cooperation on this, which just strikes me as odd because you're not used to hearing about uh, things being done that way when it comes to government. Did you get any pushback at all from anybody who, uh, like maybe police officers or other people who say, no, we want cops pulling people over for minor traffic violations because if you let the minor ones go, people are going to try to get away with bigger ones. Did you get any pushback like that at all? Well, we did get some pushback in the sense that there were people who didn't vote for it. It was a 14 to 2 vote coming out of city council, 15 to 1 on the transparency database side. And of course, there are public critics. But I think the one thing that we're proud of is um, the data driven component of not just the legislation, but also uh, what comes after as far as next steps with transparency around traffic stops in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, it puts us in a position to be able to critically analyze these stops and to be able to assess uh, how we're doing as it relates to not just improving relationships between law enforcement and communities of color, but also monitoring the stops to see the impact the legislation has had. 
Right, because if nothing is found, if there is an eventual search, if it's not turning up anything, then what was it for at the end of the day if it's just a broken taillight, right? Absolutely. I mean, in the city of Philadelphia, we looked at a year that seen over 300,000 traffic stops like this that led to contraband and or a weapon less than 1% of the time. So you have to ask yourself, what can we do uh, to reimagine how that time is spent, how those dollars are spent, and how we can use that time to impact and improve public safety. Isaiah Thomas, member of the Philadelphia City Council. Uh, Councilman, thanks. You can find the KDX In-Depth podcast on the Odyssey app, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, we mark yet, and uh, these words are have been used a lot during the pandemic, but they apply again. Another grim milestone in the COVID pandemic. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer. Five million people across the world have uh, died from COVID-19. True number of those killed likely higher. We'll probably never know the total death toll. Regardless, the five million statistic, a testament to the infectiousness, how much this has spread, mismanagement uh, in efforts to try and slow the pandemic down. Dr. Robert Wachter is a professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at uh, University of California, San Francisco. Thank you so much for joining us. So uh, the pandemic is, we keep talking about uh, when we're going to get to the end of this pandemic. We're really not in uh, some sense, are we? This is going to be with us for a long time. I think it's going to be with us for a long time. I hate to say it, but maybe forever, but not in the way that we've experienced over the past year. We may be entering a phase of what may be the new normal where there are low levels of cases and unfortunately low levels of deaths. Uh, but we're able to begin living life in a little bit more of a normal way than we did uh, previously. And I think that's sort of where the, the moment that we're at, where things may get 10 or 20 or 30 percent better and maybe the same percent worse, but not 90 percent better and not 90 percent worse. What does the five million or more say to you? Is it an indication of how this is in different paces and places almost in different spots in the world? Well, it's staggering. I mean, just it's it's if you thought about that possibility even 18 months ago, you would have said that's that can't happen. And it has happened in the United States. Uh, you know, we're 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 closing in on 800,000, nearly the size of the city of San Francisco of people who've died and and uh, and seven times that around the world. So it just means we have to redouble our efforts to do everything we can to diminish the toll as we go forward. Uh, but obviously we can't bring those lives back. Now, we talked about the likelihood that the, uh, you know, five million uh, death toll is probably a lot higher than that. And, and we can probably assume that's true because there are parts of the world that uh, don't have the infrastructure that uh, developed nations do. And so the assumptions made that the death toll from the pandemic is much higher there. Is that the case? I think that's that's not only the case because of inadequate reporting from certain parts of the world. But when you look at the number of deaths that are reported in the United States, and then you look at the excess number of deaths compared to the baseline year, uh, there's a difference there. So there's clearly been more deaths from COVID. Now, some of them are from people who had other diseases, heart attacks, strokes, cancer, that weren't able to get the care that they needed. And you certainly saw that in LA during the, the height of the surge. So 
The toll is at very least what we know about and probably uh, significantly more than that, both in the United States and everywhere else. Do you worry about the other effects like after effects of COVID, even if you know it, it will still be running around in, in circles probably forever, like you mentioned, but people put off medical care, that's going to catch up with them eventually. There's long haulers running around. There are still people who won't get vaccinated who will eventually get COVID. So that's all something that's not today. It's it's even months and, and years from now. Yeah, it's it's all of that. I, I do worry about long COVID. I don't think we know enough about it yet, but it is very clear that a a decent percentage of people who get COVID continue to have symptoms for many months and maybe even longer than that. Afterwards, we also see evidence of potential organ damage and some pretty important organs like like the like the brain and the kidneys. And so I think we're going to fi- we'll find out about the toll uh, later. And then in terms of deferred medical care, uh, yes, that's an issue. I went to see the dentist the other day for the first time in two years, and he he, he scolded me because my mouth looked terrible. <laughs> uh, and and of course I it was what I was expecting because I really had deferred something that I need to be doing. And just think about that in terms of you know people who needed their heart uh, worked up or their blood pressure medicines or their their colonoscopy. So I think there are a lot of different tolls that will play out over time. And one of the things I frankly worry about the most is we used to not give it a second thought that kids would get all of these necessary vaccines for measles and mumps and rubella and these other things. And now that vaccines have become this political football, are we going to see more people not taking not just COVID vaccine, but even other vaccines that we know are life-saving? So the whole thing is a little bit scary. Yeah. Would you say this resistance to uh, getting vaccinated, this resistance to even very simple things like uh, wearing a a face covering, uh, would you attribute maybe some of this five million death toll to to people that did not have to die, that had we just followed more of the uh, guidelines and gotten vaccinated uh, sooner, got more of us vaccinated sooner, that maybe uh, that number would be lower? Oh, there's no question about it. I think if you look at the United States, there are, you know, there were going to be hundreds of thousands of deaths from this virus. It's a terrible virus. It spreads relatively easily and kills a, a higher proportion of the people who are victims than other viruses like the flu. But I look at San Francisco, where I live, where we've been really good on vaccines, we're really good on masks, and our per capita death rate is about one quarter of the national average. Now, San Francisco has some natural advantages in terms of wealth and people who are able to work at home. But I think that if the rest of the country had followed the guidelines and had gotten vaccinated at the rate that we've seen here in in San Francisco and California in general, uh, we would certainly have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. There's no doubt about it. That's just in the United States. You multiply that around the world. There certainly are more than a million people who died who did not uh, need to have died. And this year in 2021, I mean, every death that we see now, or pretty much every death, uh, part of the reason it feels so terrible now is we know that it it would have been preventable. If you see a death in an unvaccinated person, which is virtually all of the deaths that we're seeing, you just know that it could have been prevented, and that makes it doubly tragic. Dr. Robert Walker, professor, chair of the Department of Medicine, UC San Francisco. Doctor, thanks. Coming up on In-Depth, how will the COVID pandemic end? Will it end with a bang, with a whimper, or not at all? That's coming up next on KNX In-Depth Continues.
This is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Rob Archer today. As we move past that grim marker of 5 million dead from COVID with the U.S. having the dubious distinction of having the highest overall death toll, we're in this in-between phase of the pandemic. Things have improved over the last couple of months, but each day... Over the last seven days, 1,100 people have died on average. So the pandemic, not uh, clearly not over, and yet in many respects, we carry on as if it's basically all wrapped up and things are back to normal. Question is, uh, does it ever end? And uh, if so, how? Dr. Peter Hotez, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, Baylor College of Medicine, co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. So we were talking with uh, Bob Walker over at UCSF before you joined us and got into this a little bit. We'll expand on it now. But he was saying, you know what, this doesn't, actually and we have to live with this it's going to be in circles at least every winter there's going to be covid cases because it's going to keep moving around well i don't think we really know um you know it really also depends on how aggressive we can be with vaccinating the american people and vaccinating the world i'm still of the view that we could potentially vaccinate our way out of this um, but it's gonna it's a pretty high bar we're talking about reaching uh, national and global vaccination rates that approach something like measles or polio. And we're quite a, a long ways away from that. But I think if we do that, we're not seeing that much genetic variation. And I and I think we don't necessarily have to buy into the fact that we're going to be seeing this on a seasonal basis. But I think Bob, Dr. Wachter, who, by the way, is a friend, is an, he's an amazing guy, brilliant physician scientist. Um, you know, it really depends on how, how we do with vaccinating the American people and vaccinating the world. But, you know, we've got all this resistance to vaccines, which uh, I, I, you know, I, I certainly wasn't around back then when we began to wipe out measles and things with vaccines. Was there this kind of pushback against that? And and how do you explain that? Is it maybe uh, as, uh, Mike and I were having a discussion off the air, maybe the virus wasn't deadly enough that it scared people to like vaccine? I'll take it. You've got this pushback now. And is that really going to hold us back and, and lengthen the thing even further? Well, this was waiting to happen. Um, people had not been following the anti-vaccine movement like I've been, and partly have done that for survival because I'm a number one target. I wrote a book a few years ago called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism uh, because that was the original assertion. They claim vaccines cause autism. So I wrote about one of my adult kids, Rachel has autism and intellectual disabilities. And I saw the saw the aggression firsthand over, evolve over the last few years. And despite my best efforts to call attention to it and, and how it's how it became a political movement starting in 2015, in part because of what happened in Orange County and in Southern California um, over this fake health freedom movement that accelerated in Texas, it became linked to political conservatism, to the Republican Tea Party, and it's grown ever since. And, and the, the big mistake was not getting health and human services agencies to take this on in a meaningful way and it, it had an enabling quality and now it's a monster it's and it's become a globalized enterprise if this resistance keeps up and we don't get to the rates that you're talking about that actually could get us out of this it's good news that we could but if we can't and we don't get there what do you think it looks like we mentioned seasonality uh, you know it can become endemic but for people who are vaccinated and i think maybe this has also shifted a little bit early on it was early on now, a few months ago, we've had these vaccines. It was people who got breakthrough cases. It was, oh, my gosh, that person got a breakthrough case. And now it's kind of shifted to like, oh, they got a breakthrough case. I'll see you in a week to 10 days because they're largely mild. 
Well, they are, but you know, we're also seeing severe illness as well, and and that's the rationale for doing the boosters of the of the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine and 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 the Moderna vaccine. And I think that will restore a lot of protective uh, activity, not only against severe illness, but now we're starting to see emerging data that once you give that third immunization, you could stop potentially transmission again. So if you remember the way this worked was when the vaccines were rolled out, um, they were rolled out primarily to show that they could stop symptomatic illness. But then out of Israel came studies showing, hey, this is also interrupting transmission. It's stopping virus shedding from the nose and mouth. And we thought, wow, then we could actually potentially um, halt virus transmission and vaccinate our way out of it. That was uh, back in the early part of the, the winter spring. But then uh, protection waned. It started to go down and we lost that transmission inhibiting function. But now when you're boosting with that third immunization, it may restore it um, because you get a really big bump in uh, virus neutralizing antibodies, maybe a 20 to 30 fold rise. So I think we could still get back there. But, you know, but I have to say the bar is super high. We're talking about 80 to 90 percent of the U.S. population vaccinated. That's not 80 to 90 percent of the adults. That's 80 to 90 percent of the entire U.S. population vaccinated. That means all of the adults and all of the adolescents and probably um, fully vaccinated is going to mean three doses of either of the two mRNA vaccines and two doses of the J&J &J vaccine. And you could say, well, gosh, we're never going to reach that. Well, we can and we have, right? We do it every year for polio and measles and diphtheria and pertussis. But we've got this anti-vaccine aggression that uh, or anti-science aggression that's become so virulent and is such now a, it's been adopted as a major part of the platform of the political right. It's going to be tough. When we try to imagine, you know, it's not going to end per se, but there is going to be an end phase where the COVID-19 is not top of mind. Uh, would it be something like, and correct me if I'm wrong, we still have bubonic plague. It still exists. People still get it. But it's not like a major health crisis when we do hear about these uh, little breakouts of it. Is that going to be the picture with COVID at some point down the road where uh, COVID's going to be around, but uh, it's not going to be a thing that freaks us out? Well, you know, again, I, I'm still on the um, I'm still on the side that we shouldn't be so complacent that we still should strive to get rid of this virus, and and that means doing what I just said in the U.S. and using vaccines like ours for global health, COVID-19, and fully vaccinating the world. I, I think we still have to keep that as a goal. If we don't, um, then then there are some models like uh, my colleague Mark Lipsitch at Harvard School of Public Health has suggest that we might see a seasonal peak in the winter, just like we do with some of the upper respiratory uh, coronaviruses. Um, but then again, we are also seeing peaks in the summer. We saw it in 2020 and 2021 here in the southern part of the United States. So it could have that sort of biphasic rise and, and fall ebb and flow. But let's see. Let's see how we do in terms of continuing to vaccinate. Um, I still think we got to push hard. Dr. Peter Hotez, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, Baylor College of Medicine, co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. Dr. Hotez, thanks for coming back on the show. More in-depth to come. We'll have another 30 minutes uh, coming your way. We're back on KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. 
And I'm Rob Archer sitting in today for Charles Feldman. If you want to get an early preview of how next year's congressional midterm elections could go, look no further than tomorrow's election for governor in Virginia. And it is always thus in America. Glenn Youngkin is the Republican of the race. He made his uh, business background and critical race theory two core campaign issues. Terry McAuliffe is the Democrat. He's uh, trying to make Donald Trump the main issue. Chris Saliza, senior political analyst and editor-at-large at CNN. Chris, thanks for being back. So let's start with that last one, making the former president uh, the issue. Is that sticking with people? Well, we're going to find out in uh, about 24 hours. Um, I, I think it has less salience with Donald Trump not on Twitter every day, not in the White House every day. Um, I think that that makes it harder, not impossible, but harder for Terry McAuliffe to make the argument that this is really about Donald Trump because Donald Trump isn't in office right now. Uh, Remember, Virginia is a state that Joe Biden won by 10 points uh, in 2020, uh, a year ago. This race, unless all the polls are radically wrong, this race is not going to be a 10-point race uh, victory for Terry McAuliffe. If he wins, it's going to be narrow. Uh, If Youngkin wins, it's going to be narrow. But we expect, based on the polling, something very close, which could be an ill omen for Democrats nationally, even if McAuliffe ekes out a win. You know, we try to turn this into a crystal ball, uh, this election, because, uh, you know, midterms mm-hmm. coming up and, and very pol- polarized country that we have right now. Is is this election really a crystal ball for the midterms or, or can we be surprised by, like, let's say Terry McAuliffe loses big and everybody says, oh, the Democrats are going to lose. But then something happens because it's politics is politics. Things happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I always... I think we always have to be careful saying X thing is definitely going to happen, because I remember back to the 2016 election when I, for one, uh, looked at all the polling and all the data and said, well, Hillary Clinton's going to win. And we know how that race turned out. So I think it's important to say this can matter. This is the first major test we've seen in a competitive battleground state. Uh, of sort of what the post-Trump Republican Party looks like and what the Biden Democratic Party looks like, Democrats in control of the House, Senate, and the White House. So I think it can give us clues, but yeah, it's politics. It, there, there's a reason they run the races, right? Uh, if, if what happens tomorrow night it was determinative of what's going to happen in a year's time in November 2022. Well, we could all just, I could go on vacation for the next year and not spend a lot of time covering the campaign, right? Circumstances matter. Situations arise. Look, at the start of the 2020 campaign, no one thought that we would be dealing with a global pandemic, a once in a hundred years pandemic, right? I don't think we're going to get that again, <laughs> something that big as an unforeseen um, event. But there will be things, whether it's inflation, state of the economy, immigration. We know that there are big issues that happen that do influence how voters think about things. So I would say it's a clue. It's not the whole picture. Do you think that there's a feeling, at least for the Democrats, that complicates things among people out there that they're not getting a lot done right now? So that'll blow some headwinds your way. Yeah, I I think that the the focus has all been on two things in the last couple months. One, what's not in these infrastructure and the social safety net bill, right? What's being pared out? And two, that it's not passed. Uh, While it's never as simple as the average person thinks, right? But the average person looks at it and says, look, Democrats are in control of the White House. They control the House. They control the Senate. Why aren't they doing what they said they would do? 
that argument is it's overly simplified, as any Democratic strategist will tell you, right? The Democratic Party is broad. There's moderates. There's liberals. It's, it's not as easy. There's Joe Manchin and there's uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez within the Democratic Party. But for the average person looking at this, they say, well, we elected you to sort of get back to normal, to get things done for the country. And even though you control all these levers of power in Washington, it's not happening. I, I think there's no question that's a headwind for Terry McAuliffe in Virginia, and at least one of the reasons why this race is so close. Uh, I have a question about Glenn Youngkin, though, because we were talking about he's the Republican in the race here. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and as you said, maybe Trump is not that big of an issue uh, because Trump is not on Twitter anymore. He's not in office and uh, doesn't have that big of an impact anymore. But it does appear to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Glenn Youngkin doing this delicate dance of like, hey, uh, Trump supporters, I'm your guy. But at the same time, don't really want Trump to come here and campaign for me. Am I am I seeing it the right way? Is that, is that what no, happened with you, him? You are. Yes, you are seeing exactly the right way. So Glenn Youngkin is a business guy from Northern Virginia, right? So he's he's sort of a business Republican. He is not a Donald Trump-style Republican in background or in sort of tone and approach to a campaign. He has done everything he can, and he's done it quite well, to not anger the Trump base. He hasn't come out and said, I don't think Donald Trump should be a part of the party. I don't think Donald Trump should run again. He didn't. He doesn't come out every time Donald Trump says something and condemn it, while also trying to stay as far as a Republican who needs the Republican base can stay away from Donald Trump, which is why I think a lot of Republican candidates are looking at Youngkin and thinking, is this a line that can be walked? This guy has done it about as well as we've seen anyone since Donald Trump get, got elected. Anyone walk that line between not alienating Trump supporters while also not alienating independents that you need to win a general election? If he loses, I think there'll be some people say, well, it's Virginia, it's a Democratic-leaning state. But I think there'll be other people who say, look, you just you can't escape that stink of Trump when it comes to independent voters, that it's still, no matter what you do, if you're a Republican and Donald Trump is a Republican, that's not going to work. And so I do. that's another lesson I think you take away. But yes, Youngkin is absolutely a guinea pig. If he wins, you're going to see a lot of Republican candidates across the country look at that campaign as a blueprint for how you can win, even with Donald Trump still the most powerful and high-profile person in the party. Chris Eliza, senior political analyst, editor at large at CNN. Chris, thanks. Coming up on the in depth, sportsmanship went out the window at a local high school football game on Friday night. We will explain. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer. So we've been telling you about this game. Uh, Inglewood High absolutely dominating last Friday night's uh, game against Morningside High School. Record-setting score, 106 to nothing. Uh, seven of the Inglewood football team's players have already committed to four-year college football programs. The quarterback has set a record number of touchdowns thrown. Uh, Inglewood has a very, very good football team. The uh, California Interscholastic Federation Southern Section condemned the game for not adhering to its strict code of sports Chip. Rob Wygott is the uh, Commissioner of Athletics at uh, CIF uh, Southern Section. Thank you for joining us. So what, what happened here? I mean, what gets into the mind of the winning team to keep this score going up and up? Because I understand they even did some two-point conversions uh, after, after the score was already uh, uh, mountainous to get over. That's a really good question, and it's something that we're trying to find out directly from Inglewood High School through their administration. Uh, as soon as we found out about what was going on, actually, 
I was receiving reports uh, of this game on Friday night. I was hearing what was happening as the game was developing. And, uh, you know, certainly you have to plan for this. This is not something that you go out to do that just happens. If you're trying to score 100 points and you're trying to, to try to set records, if you want to call those records, you know, there has to be a calculated plan to do it. And it's really regrettable and unfortunate that that's the approach that was taken Friday night. Yeah, what was going through your head when you were getting the texts from other people saying, do you, do you know what's going on out there at Inglewood? Yeah, just thinking this is so uh, not who we are and what we're about and what we're trying to do with education-based athletics. This is just not at all uh, the ideas that we're trying to instill in, in all the young people we work with. It's about sportsmanship. It's about respect. It's about humility and victory and, and grace and defeat. And, and certainly a game like this is not a representation of what we're trying to do. Is there a bigger issue here of a, of a maybe a mindset? Uh, can we take this uh, like what happened here and say, well, that's what's wrong with America today is you've got people that uh, win at all costs and, and you must thoroughly uh, not just beat somebody, you have to demolish them. Is, is that at play here or, or maybe is it something with these, uh, these uh, young athletes uh, wanting to uh, pad their records a bit? Well, I think you have to look at a couple of different aspects of all of this. If certainly there's an effort to embarrass or humiliate or really uh, take away all all forms of of respect for your opponent by doing something like this, I think uh, if that's a reflection on our society, then then we have a real problem. I will tell you that I've been talking about this a lot and, and with some different folks, and I guess one thought is that this doesn't happen that often. It, it it shouldn't happen at all, but it's not like something that is getting the attention it's getting because it is an unusual circumstance. It's something that we know has to be addressed and something that we don't ever want to see happen again. So uh, there's there's a lot of things that that could be going on in the, in the minds of those responsible. I think it's kind of hard to look at young people and is it a realistic expectation that the young people on that football team were going to tell their coaches, no, I'm not going to throw that pass or no, I'm not going to try to score a touchdown or no, I'm not going to uh, I am going to go for a two-point conversion when I'm ahead 104 to nothing. I don't know that we can be fair to our, our young people to say that we expect them to tell the adults that they're not going to do that. We expect the adults to to lead in the appropriate way. Yeah, because the adults on one side have to think how the other kids are feeling, right? The ones that are behind by 106 points. You would hope so. And And all of us, I coached high school football for almost 20 years, and I've been on that side. I've been on both sides. And I think anyone who's been in the coaching game knows that, that you may have, and as you already mentioned, Inglewood High School has a fine team, some excellent players that are getting all kinds of attention for the next level in college. And so when you're on that side of it, uh, it's certainly one way, but Inglewood High School in previous years hasn't been to that level. And, and I'm certain that they absorb some pretty difficult defeats during those years. So you just have to keep that in mind as you go through this uh, for the long term. All right. I'm, I'm curious about something. Have you ever been in a situation where uh, you know of a game that was uh, going toward this, where uh, one team was just demolishing their opponents, but they decided when they saw that, you know, we've already won the game, let's just pull back and just play for the sake of play. Has that ever happened in your knowledge? And, and uh, can you give us examples? Well, sure. And, and I think what people need to realize, too, is that a game can either be ended by mutual agreement or you can begin to have a running clock where you're not stopping the clock for any, any stoppage at all for, for the rest of the game. You can come to that agreement at any time. So our, our reports were the score was 59 to nothing at the end of the first quarter. And so there certainly could have been talk about whatever might have happened between the teams on a mutual agreement. There is a rule that after three quarters and the uh, spread is 35 points or more, the clock has to automatically run. 
but that's a, a national federation rule. But leading up to that point, if the game is that far out of hand, you'd like to believe there's some reasonable people who would have looked at how how to make this uh, outcome different than it ended up. And, and also quickly going into this game, I mean, Inglewood was an undefeated team. Morningside's had a difficult season. They've struggled. I mean, you, you should know before this game even starts that there should be a plan in place of how to negotiate through this game, making sure first and foremost that there's no health and safety issues, that the student athletes get a chance to, to play this game without a risk of injury or anything like that. And then uh, look for a, a solution that, that can accomplish what you're trying to accomplish without putting one team in a position where they just get completely destroyed in terms of the score and, and how that, that treatment was for, throughout the game. Well, yeah, if you can see it coming, you can put some kids who are sometimes on the bench or as backups. They can play. They can get some game time if you know this is going to happen anyways because you can Absolutely. see the discrepancy. But also, like back to the mercy rule, I mean, do we know if the Morningside coach asked and then, you know, if the other Inglewood coach didn't, no, no running clock tonight. I mean, what does that say? Well, that's part of what we're trying to do. I mean, as soon as we found out about this, we have reached out to the Inglewood High School administration. They've responded back to us. We're expecting a full and detailed report of the goings on that that happened that night. So we, we just don't have that answer yet. And, and we're looking to get that soon. And we'll have a better sense of what steps were taken. Uh, we have been in contact with the game officials. We are, are doing what we can to get all the details so that we can try to sort out if, if maybe some of the things that could have been done uh, were done. Do you think the press this is getting the attention it's getting is at least going to be a signal to, to a bunch of coaches out there that are that are in your section and in others? Well, you certainly hope so. It's very ironic. We yesterday released our playoff brackets for our 14 divisions of 11-man football, two divisions of eight-man football. Our playoffs are starting this weekend. We didn't get to have playoffs last year. I mean, we were so excited to be able to uh, get our championships back and, and have the student athletes get that opportunity. And I'm spending a, a great amount of time talking about this and, and this particular situation. But talking about it in a way that you said it, let's, let's make sure this is out there. Let's make sure people know that this is not acceptable and it's not who we are, what we stand for and what we're all about with education-based athletics. And uh, I look forward to at least uh, making sure that we're strong in that message uh, instead of unfortunately getting to talk more about this week's matchups and who's going to beat who and, and so forth. Rob Wygod, Commissioner of Athletics at CIF Southern Section. Thanks for talking to us about this. That's in-depth for the day. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.